The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. My guest this week is Nancy Burke. Nancy's the Special Assistant for Housing and COVID-19 Response at the United Way of Anchorage. After our interview, Nancy sent me a quote from a United Way document that summarized its history for its 50th anniversary back in the early 2000s. The quote reads, Anchorage didn't have a United Way, or United Good Neighbors as it was called then, until Lucy Cuddy founded one in 1956. Territorial Anchorage had its own kind of health and social problems in the days before statehood. The year before United Good Neighbors started fundraising in town, Mayor of Anchorage Maynard Taylor announced he had appointed a special committee to, quote, study relief problems. There is a critical situation in Anchorage, he said in a newspaper article appearing on the front page of the Anchorage Times. He appointed a professional consultant to study the matter as well, and from the consultant's recommendations, Taylor appointed a group to raise funds. Taylor didn't spell out exactly what the trouble was, and readers of the day didn't expect it. But Frank Reed, one of the eight people Taylor appointed to the committee, was quoted as saying in years later, Poverty, alcoholism, and homelessness, those issues weren't discussed as openly as they are today. From that quote, we can understand that Anchorage has been dealing with complex social issues for a long time. In this episode, we'll learn more about how the city has responded to homelessness over the years from my guest, Nancy Burke. Here's our conversation. That I have yet to cross And I have dreamed of faraway places Where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over Nancy Burke, and I am a mental health clinician by training and have been working in areas relating to disabilities. I started um, working with people with intellectual disabilities, moved into working with people with traumatic brain injuries, and um, then into folks um, in the mental health arena. And so um, I've been working in what I describe as home and community-based services for those populations for the last many years since uh, I started in 1989. And in fact, I started in Anchorage as a case manager doing a lot of the similar work that I support um, our service partners doing today. 
And, and listeners might be aware of the fact that you've been involved with the um, homelessness in Anchorage for quite a while. Could you explain what your involvement has been over the years with those that are struggling with uh, living on the street? Oh, yeah, sure. In fact, I should uh, back up a bit and say um, in 2001, I started working for the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority as a program officer, um, largely because of my experience with services with those specialized populations, um, particularly people with traumatic brain injuries. Uh, it was part of my focus. And in looking at what those uh, folks needed to remain stable, we really became drawn to housing. So I've worked for most of my career in housing. Um, for 13 years, I worked at the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority overseeing a portfolio of grants and um, initiatives that examined um, support services people need and housing and how to sort of link those things together. Then in 2015, when the administration changed in Anchorage um, through conversations with the trust and the, the municipality of Anchorage, we embarked on this. Um, my, my first two years were a shared position. So I was shared from the Alaska Mental Health Trust to the mayor's office to oversee examining what would it take to bring together all of the resources needed for the entire system of people who didn't have housing to bring them into the kinds of structures we had been studying and promoting and working on at the state. And so in that work with the state, some of the more notable projects that listeners might remember is the at the um, we headed up, I, I helped head up the um, the first housing first programs. So Carlick Manor was the first one which really had the big media splash in 2011. There was a lot of um, controversy around that pro that project. And there have been several others in the community since. So really this idea of bringing the housing quickly and first and with robust services and helping people get to that, um, that kind of setting. The work we were doing at the with the uh, prior administration was to see what would it take to have your entire system thinking that way? Um, we, so listening into your answers, one of the things that I would love to hear from you is how did those, I mean, kind of hear your journey moving from sort of mental health and working with these specific po um, populations into housing and then into homelessness. Like how does that continuum of mental health and housing and homelessness, how does that like sort of um, work together? Like how does that contribute or how do they all connect um, in this, in that way? I would say economically, <laughs> they connect economically because the challenges that people on the street today or in the work that we had done previously um, to support persons with disabilities to be in housing, at the core of it was the affordability of housing and their ability to put all of the pieces together to maintain continuity um, in their the resources they needed. And, you know, when you, I, I don't know if you've ever had a family member maybe who went into the hospital or a, a, a child with, um, you know, a, a disability or, or conditions that require a lot of different professional services, it's, it's nearly a full-time job to, um, you know, connect all those pieces and make sure everything stays together. And then when you're very low income, you, you spend most of your time either looking for the resources you need or allocating what little you have, and there's no margin. And so I would say economics is what brings those populations into um, the same situation and oftentimes uh, unhoused. 
So you had mentioned you've been in the city since 1989, I think you said, and have been working in in one way or another with with folks um, connected with homelessness that entire time. What has kind of been the history of how the city has responded to um, the homelessness situation in Anchorage? If you could give kind of an overview of that, that would be really helpful. At least I know for me, I've been here not quite that long, (laughs) but over 20 years and have kind of noticed different things, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, what's been the history of Anchorage's response to homelessness? Um, Well, that's pretty, that's a complex question, but I can say from, I'll, I'll speak first from the social service sort of response, and then I'll speak to the community, how the community uh, trajectory has gone in, in my view. In social services in the, in those early days in 1989, it in fact, uh, from after uh, my husband and I were married, we came home to be live-in staff for the first project that I'm aware of that uh, helped people who everyone said really are not houseable. We had people who had what a, like a polydiagnostic um, sort of makeup. They had a developmental disability, um, a, an addiction typically, and another um, condition like a mental illness or traumatic brain injury. So these were the folks that were very high intensity need. And we had a project that was neighborhood based. We lived in one house, um, people lived in you know houses on the blocks near us. And my husband was the staff on that one. He would just go around and he would see people in their house and he would visit with them and he would learn what was happening with them and he could see them in their environment, which from a from a clinical or from a social work perspective, that is so important to be able to be in someone's house and to see how they're arranging things and what skills might be missing in those things. And so what allowed those programs to happen was that the state used to be largely funded for social services on grant funding, which if you're from the nonprofit world, you know that grant funding is a bit of a a gold standard to have in the mix because it serves as flexible funding. Um, What happened in the the mid-2000s is the state transitioned to using Medicaid for a lot of our services. And so as as that transition happened, that flexibility, the ability to be in someone's home went away largely. And what what replaced it was the person coming to the clinic. So now that person, that same person that we might have been at their kitchen table having a conversation is now in a clinical setting. And that brings its own, you know, your heart rate goes up, you're like nervous, you don't know. And so that brings its own kind of um, setting. Now, relationships happen there and people do access services at clinic-based locations. But in terms of supporting someone in housing, there is just nothing that replaces the kitchen table. And so without the ability, with the the funding being more constrained toward those traditional, more medical kind of clinical services, the community lost the ability to be responsive in the way that it it had previously when there was grant funding. And so as that changed rolled through, I think what happened for the community, the pressure on housing increased. You know, Anchorage doesn't have that much of that low-income housing. And now what it does have is aging out, you know, and so people are starting to redevelop that what used to be those low income sites, um, trailer parks, all all of the low income areas are ripe for redevelopment and and new projects. So, um, you know, there there just wasn't that much 
of the stock. And then when the market tightens, the people who get um, knocked out of the market are people who can't keep everything, you know, sort of together. So it's that low income, that very low income population that gets squeezed out. And, you know, Anchorage, even in 2015, when I was in the mayor's office, was one of very few communities that I'm aware of that didn't expend much money on a safety net um, support. So there was not money going toward um, shelter, going toward uh, supporting the police. You know, in, in the administration I served in, we um, were able to pilot some of the clinical responders going along with police so that you can de-escalate um, you know, things that might otherwise end in an arrest or a person, um, you know, escalating and, and having a challenge. And so, you know, we were able to just pull in some money to begin those seeds. And now you, you can kind of see where those have grown. The, the crisis um, now work was a parallel effort, but is phenomenal because now that's bringing resources to the um, EMS providers and the and the police that that didn't exist. So now the municipality is thinking about how to invest in ways that um, save that save the the muni money is is one motivation, but also is better for all of the people across the board. It's better for police to not have to interact with folks. It's better for fire to not have to be on those calls because someone might be having a heart attack. You know, um, so so the uh, the ability for the municipality to invest in the in the funding brought about some changes but i think what happened for the face of homelessness over this time is it looked like and the certain sectors of it did grow there there are more people that you see outside now than maybe you had prior to you know the early 2010s um those years so so there were slow gains that happen, but the face of homelessness is what most people see and they can't see all these like system improvements that are happening behind the scene. So I wanna back up to something that you said in, in that explanation. And that is that when you had first been involved, the city Anchorage was one of the few cities that wasn't spending a lot of kind of money on a safety net. Um, was that because of Budget constraints, was that because they had enough support from the nonprofit world? Like what was sort of driving that difference between maybe a city of a similar size somewhere in the lower 48? It was never really clear. Um, and I, I will say what it's one of the reasons why an alcohol tax was pursued to bring some revenue. Um, I think I think money was a constraint and remains a constraint. You know, about two thirds of the budget in the municipality goes toward emergency response services, so police and fire. And then, you know, the, re the remainder of it goes to everything else, parks, rec centers, you know, like all the things that make quality of living great. And so bringing on an additional fund source that can alleviate some of the pressures around those things that, that make, you know, living in Anchorage such a cool thing. I love the, the trails and the parks and, you know, all the amenities. But then when you when you have people who are struggling out in those locations, it, it makes it hard for, for everyone to be out there. And so bringing on an additional fund source was was really a key element. Um, but also it was it's sort of a thing that Alaskans are bootstrap kind of people like, well, those those folks should just, you know, get off the street and go get a job. And, you know, so it's not something that 
people have been able to see the return on investment for yet. Um, there are a couple of projects coming through, um, one that United Way is running, the uh, Home for Good program that I think is just gonna, um, you know, once we, once we bring it to fruition, it's going to be very clear that investing in these services and housing for people brings um, gains across so many different sectors. So I'm, I'm excited about that work. So maybe a question I should have started with <laughs> before we got into all of that was really, I mean, Anchorage isn't a very old city, so we're only at like just over 100 years. So is there any kind of understanding of like, when did the city first begin to um, have a noticeable or sizable population of homeless folks? Like sort of what is the history of, of just there being people that are struggling with housing in the city? I, I haven't seen any real clear documentation of this. So I'll, I'll just say this is my sense of it, having worked in the field. Um, you know, in, the, in 1989, my husband was doing that housing program and I was doing a support program that really, that worked with people with developmental disabilities coming off the street. So it was a focus back then. And, you know, the, you would ride down Chester Creek um, Trail and there would be camps on Chester Creek Trail all the time. You know, it was just sort of part of what we lived with. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, it was understood that, you know, you could be in the woods in Anchorage, but people had a different understanding about how to camp at that time. What happens now is the volume of material that comes in to camps and the um, the cleanliness and the challenges of those um, locations, you know, some of the camps that become like bike shops and, um, you know, just the, the, the sheer size and volume of materials in the camps is that's new. That's been since I would say 2012, 2013. Um, but there is a significant point where in 2012, there was a lawsuit around camping that um, went through and um, was, was won by advocates um, to say that you have to provide notice if you're gonna remove a camp because the police prior to that had been just in the, in the practice of going in, destroying camps, ripping tents so that people wouldn't be incentivized to come back. And then that lawsuit happened and this 10 day notice process was set up. And now you, just the volume of material you see out in camps is, is much higher. So I would say that the point where it became more vi mo most visible and most problematic for the community was around 2013, 2014. Thank you so much for listening. If you're informed, inspired, encouraged, or just plain enjoy this podcast, will you do me a favor? You will be rewarded. Go to whatever podcast app you use and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Those ratings, reviews, and subscriptions help more people find and listen to us. 
I also encourage you to like and follow the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative, the organization behind the Anchorage City Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, we're at Anchorage UTC, and on Instagram, we're at Anchorage UTC. So what's the reward? Aside from the warm feeling of knowing you're helping to spread the word about this great podcast, if you rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast, and we hope you do all three, or you share a post about the Anchored City podcast on Facebook or Instagram with the hashtag Anchored City, send proof like a screenshot to anchorageutc at gmail.com along with your snail mail address, and we'll send a little swag out to you. So once again, rate, review, and subscribe for the Anchored City podcast on whatever app you use to listen to this podcast, or share a post about the podcast on Facebook or Instagram with the hashtag Anchored City, take a screenshot, send it to our email address, which is anchorageutc at gmail.com, along with your snail mail address, and we'll get you some free swag for helping us get the word out about this podcast. Now, back to the episode. And with all those lessons learned With the crazy long life that I lived already And the scars I earned I still can't seem to find But loving you just once was worth it, even if I, I can't have... So one thing that we're trying to do this season on the podcast is help folks understand just how many, um, we're using the term hydra, so like a snake with multiple heads, how many different issues are connected to homelessness, that it's not this one thing, it's this whole constellation of factors and that in some ways homelessness ends up being a symptom of like lots of other systems that are not doing well. So um, if you were to kind of list some of the, I guess, heads of the Hydra, <laughs> is one way to think of it, or, or issues that are connected with homelessness or are intertwined with it, what are some of the things that you would put on your list? Yeah, I saw that. I spent some time, a lot of time really thinking about that. And I was thinking, you know, one of the things that I would encourage is the demystification of homelessness. Yes, there are a lot of systems that are failing the mental health system. You know, in 1973, there was the deinstitutionalization of mental health um, institutions. And, you know, there was supposed to be all this funding that went out into community. Um, there's a there's um, designated community mental health centers and there was supposed to be money and it was gonna work and be great, but turns out people don't really like to fund services that directly support people. That's that's more somehow compelling for the world to think of institutions, you know, so fund a big building for them to go to and go away. And, and even you see like our mayor, let's just go put them in the campground. Like let's just move people and put them away. Um, but I would say that I was thinking about my household and the the hydra of the household, you know, like, what does it take to keep my household together? Well, it takes coordinating medical appointments, it takes coordinating, you know, when the, my kids were younger, like what they needed, they needed, you know, this service or that service. And it's, it's really that every person needs that 
ability to put together what you need to be safe and to, to live and to be healthy, but you have to have a place to stay. And it really boils down to me is housing is the solution to homelessness. And then yes, you need all the people like me who do mental health services and all the, all the things you need them to be layered on top of it. But really, you know, we, we need 500 units of permanent supported housing like the Carlick Manor project in this community to meet the need that we see. And these are people who we have a reasonable amount of knowledge of. We have a clinical assessment that they probably do need that level of assistance. 500 of them. And the, you know, the assembly and all the work that's happening right now is we're going to probably get maybe 100 new ones for that particular population. And, and it's just, it's just a volume thing. We don't pay attention to housing. You know, you, there's no commission that looks at, is there enough housing in the community for people? There's, there's nobody who looks at that. There's a traffic commission that could probably tell you what buses we need in five years on Tudor road and what frequency they are and where the next road build out will be to keep the volume down. They can tell you all about traffic, but nobody can tell you about housing. It's, it's treated as this like thing that you have to earn. So you might have answered my next question, which is if you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing, like right now, no barriers, just Nancy gets to pick what, what gets fixed in Anchorage. Like, what would you wave your magic wand and do in around this area of homelessness? I'd have housing that was walkable to public transportation, and I would have little self-help kiosks in every grocery store for like, what are you missing? Do you need help with food stamps? Do you need help with um, someone to come in, help you clean your house? You know, I'd have like this really dispersed, a very available resource network for people. Um, but mostly I would have housing that was walkable to public transportation. But that kind of speaks to what you were saying before, like all this emphasis on traffic and how we move vehicles around the city, but not not as much thought like many cities of how do you move people that don't have a vehicle? Um, right. How do you make things accessible? Yeah. For them as they move around the city as well. Yeah. Yeah. What would you like folks to know um, that I maybe haven't asked you about, or what have I missed that you would add to this conversation? Um, one of the things that I um, practiced while I, when I was in the mayor's office and I continue to try to practice is, you know, when people would call and they would say, there's a guy on 15th and, you know, whatever, and, and this is happening or that is happening. And I would say, what's his name? And, and people would say, well, I don't know his name. I'm just calling you because that's happening and I'm mad about it. And I said, well, you know, if you want, we could go down and like learn his name together. Or, you know, you could, you could go back, you could figure out what his name is because, well, also practically that helps me find the guy, right? But it does a different thing. It brings this to a scenario where if you're gonna call me and talk about Joe, and you know, then the, of course the next thing I would say is, where's he from, <laughs> you know? And how's his mom, you know, like, <laughs> how's his family? Is, the, is everything, okay? you know, just anything that broke down this Miss making homelessness a mystery, you know, these, these are like, I'm almost to the point where I won't even talk about homelessness. I'll talk about my future tenants. 
oh, that's my future tenant out there. Because if, if we get to this point where we're making people different than we are, every person on that street, but for the, but for the grace of God, go I, is me, you know? And if we, if we would think about it that way, and if we would be outraged by what's happening to people in the same way that if that was my daughter or my mother or my brother, you know, um, it, we would be doing a lot better. <laughs> you know, that would be such a gift for our community. Yeah, the othering that's part of so many of the things that we discuss where we make somebody different than us really puts up these barriers that removes the responsibility and the humanness of those interactions and the, the folks that we see when we make yeah. them different than us. You use the phrase future tenants, so that might be a good lead into, if you could just explain what you're working on with United Way in your role now, what are they doing around this area of like affordable housing and access to housing and supported housing, those type of things? Yeah, I think it's a great question about, you know, why United Way? Why would United Way be in this? And United Ways um, across the country are a definitely a nonprofit, but they're sort of at a system level of, of nonprofit work. You've, you've seen United, United Ways in many communities, Denver and Boston and others, you know, support the community plan to end homelessness. Um, United Ways figure out where the gaps are, they monitor systems, and then they, they um, work on innovation or incubation to, to fill those gaps. So one of a good example is the, um, you know, the, the people who are the most intensive service needs. So folks who have a mental illness and most of the time a, an addiction on top of that and, and oftentimes another thing. Um, United Way and the municipality in 2015, 2016 um, received a grant from um, National HUD and Department of Justice to figure out what would it take to house those folks right off the street, right into housing, um, so we put together a project that's 150 um, people with the highest needs and um, just work together with service providers and um, the community. And we have these service contracts and we're about, we have about half of the people in the project right now. We're working on getting them to leases and that um, lease up is our only um, outcome measure that we look at, stability and housing. We don't, we don't go in to say, well, you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G to get this housing. We just say, nope, we're gonna figure out what you need to be in the housing and we're just gonna make it housing. And so we've, we have some pretty good success rates and we, we've shown that um, people reduce their interactions with police, they, inter they reduce interactions with fire. And so this, this kind of like looking at the system and saying, you know, we hear from police and fire and the health department that, people are consuming a disproportionate amount of those emergency services because they aren't stabilized. And so how do we do that? How do we put that together? So United Way put together this work and the project's called Home for Good. It's available on United Way's website, more information about it. But looking at that, and then the other thing we noticed was landlords um, are oftentimes nervous about renting to someone who's coming out of homelessness. They might have bad credit, they might have some, um, criminal convictions, they might just not have any kind of a renter history. And so what would it take for us to work with landlords? So United Way offered to put together a, a partnership that involves a, a number of community partners to recruit landlords. Like, hey, if you wanna be part of this project, we're gonna make referrals of people exiting homelessness. 
we can help with some, um, we have a, a financial incentive for landlords up front um, so that it can help encourage them and make them feel like, well, if something happens, I have this little bit of a cushion, but we also have a risk mitigation pool that if damage does happen to the units, the landlords can apply to us um, for um, some risk, some funding to help um, make it better, to help uh, repair. And so just these things, you know, United Way is constantly scanning for where are the gaps in the system? How can we fill them? How can we demonstrate the next piece? And then, uh, you know, that that grows the system and makes it stronger. And then we we move on and we figure out the next thing. So that's um, I'm, I'm kind of back to my old housing work, uh, if you will. Full circle in some ways, it's, it sounds like. Um, if folks wanted to get involved with that, you mentioned the website. Is there other ways that they could get in touch with you or with United Way to kind of get involved with that initiative? Yeah, they can. I mean, my email is nburke at ak.org, and they'd be very welcome to email me or um, give me a shout. Great. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests, which is in the middle of your work, what's like a, a spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do to keep yourself personally centered in the middle of the work that you're doing? Yeah, I saw this question and I spent some time thinking and and I actually, I mentioned, I went back and listened to some of the other guests and, and I was encouraged because I, my first thing would say is, well, I'm, I'm not as disciplined as I'd like to be in doing this. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I'm a, I'm a work in progress, right? Um, but I do have to say that the um, the time to reflect and to be quiet and my practice for prayer and for renewal is um, running or skiing, you know, something that's repetitive and just outdoors. And so that is um, that's usually my thing. I have to admit, when I was in um, a high, more high pressure situations. Sometimes those are the first things that drop out of your wellness schedule is, is setting that time aside. And I've, I've been spending the last year recovering that and just making sure that I have enough space to breathe and um, to literally breathe while running, you know, that it can become sort of that prayer, prayerful breath exercise. So that's, that's my, that's my go-to. Yeah, I might as well. Anything repetitive where I'm moving is super helpful for me to clear my head. And I have a friend that, that says we call them spiritual practices or mindful practice. We use this word practice because we're not good at them. We have to keep yeah. Yeah. learning them, which I find I find myself reminding myself of all the time. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and, and to share with our listeners a little bit about the, the history of homelessness and kind of the complexity of, of uh, where we're at as a city. And thanks for your work around that. Thank you. It's been fun. My thanks to Nancy Burke for joining us on this episode. I found the insights and the history that she shared to be very helpful in beginning to understand the hydra that is homelessness. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. 
and we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner. Mm-hmm.